Hello, and welcome back to the Caliphs, the rise and fall of Arab power. My name is Zayd Wahab, and today we will cover the reign of Omar II's successor, Yazid II. We'll be able to match our brisk one Caliph per episode pace because, as with the reigns of our last two Caliphs, we don't really have a lot of material to work with. Our sources report heavily on a rebellion early during Yazid's reign, but after that we only find some brief mentions of what seems to have been pretty important changes. The Caliph himself remains hidden behind a veil of mystery and hearsay, and ultimately we will emerge with a kind of caricature instead of a full-fledged person. Episode 32, Yazid bin Abdul Malik. been struggling to mold the little I find about the reigns of our last few caliphs into full episodes which flow smoothly, and more importantly, have an interesting point to make. The testimony we find during these years is so sparse that a reader can't help but feel, like for every word that made it to the page, tens have been left behind. The narrations casually bring up unfamiliar themes and events, and it comes across like they assume readers have plenty of supplemental material, which, as I have lamented before, is sadly missing. While Yazid's reign will be similar, I promise this won't be the case forever. We're actually almost done with the underrepresented part of the Umayyad dynasty, at least for a while. Yazid ibn Abdul Malik was born in Damascus in the early 690s, around the time his father defeated Mus'ab ibn Zubayr in Iraq, effectively reuniting the caliphate under Umayyad control. So Yazid grew up during a phase of unprecedented power for the Umayyads, and unlike the last five caliphs, he never experienced the precarious years of the Second Fitna. Despite not being around during the Second Fitna, his special lineage connected him to it in a unique way. We have already said plenty about his father, Abdul Malik, but his mother, Atika, was such an important figure that even her gender couldn't stop her from breaking through into the oral narrations. She must have been central to the clan's ruling family, and all three of our sources delight in telling us how she was the only woman in history related to over a dozen caliphs by blood or marriage. Si'atika named her son Yazid after her oft-maligned father, the original Yazid, Yazid ibn Muawiyah. So Muawiyah was her grandpa, Yazid was her dad, Muawiyah II was her brother. Then she married Abdul Malik, making Marwan her father-in-law and Walid and Suleiman her stepsons. Her son was now about to finally take charge at the age of 29 after the unexpected reign of Omar, thanks to Suleiman's Qahtani advisors, and while that's not quite a dozen yet, there will be more to come later. This made Yazid a direct descendant of the only two Umayyad families to have ruled the Caliphate. It was a heritage he was extremely proud of, and we hear him boast of it in some of his poetry, though to be honest that's not uncommon for Arab nobility. I guess there was one other branch of the Umayyad clan which had briefly held power, Uthman ibn Affan's family, and maybe it was for good measure or something, but he married into that by wedding the third caliph's great-granddaughter. She was his second wife, however, and it's his first wife I need to tell you about, so listen up, because this is kind of important. She was the niece of Al-Hajjaj, Abdul Malik's relentlessly brutal vice-regent of the East, and the match went on to have real consequences for the Ummah. 
Al-Hajjaj had not been a partisan in the overarching tribal conflict, but after the sons of Al-Muhallab took refuge with the solidly Qahtani Sulaiman to escape the powerful governor's grasp, an irreversible association began to take place. This was later cemented after Caliph Sulaiman appointed Yazid ibn al-Muhallab as governor of Khurasan. That Yazid stripped all of Hajjaj's loyalists of their wealth and positions and dealt with the remnants of the previous governor's power base quite savagely. Many of these were direct kin of al-Hajjaj, and so the new caliph had some counter-retribution to dole out to the muhallabs for their treatment of his in-laws. This is where we will have to begin our story today, the clash between the two Yazids. Before we get started, I'd like to take a minute to address the curiously high number of Yazids we find in Arab history around this point. The Yazids populating the caliphate were mostly around 30 years old, which means they were born about a decade after the first Yazid's infamous massacre of the Hashemites, around the time Umayyad power was beginning to recover from that fateful tragedy. To name your son Yazid then was a clear declaration of allegiance to the Umayyad cause. That these Yazids now wielded influence in the caliphate is no surprise. I counted four of them during this caliph's reign, but they won't all feature in the episode. I think I can limit the use of the name to just the caliph and Yazid ibn al-Muhallab to cut down on any potential confusion. Sadly, it's only going to get harder with these names. I'll have to come up with something for when we have to discuss the drama between Yazid ibn al-Walid and Walid ibn al-Yazid a generation later. The set of narrations about this conflict make up about half of all we have on Yazid II's reign, and unfortunately the caliph doesn't feature too heavily in them. Now you may remember that the caliph's predecessor, Umar ibn Abdul Aziz, also had a problem with Yazid ibn al-Muhallab. He had summoned him back to Syria and imprisoned him after he failed to respond to charges of embezzling. Well, we're told that when Yazid ibn al-Muhallab heard that Omar II was on his deathbed, he bribed his way out of jail and escaped in fear of what the next caliph would do to him. Now, this didn't really make much sense at first glance. I mean, if you could just bribe his way out of jail, why hadn't he done so sooner? But keeping in mind the animus the new caliph would have had against Yazid for the brutality he had shown to his in-laws, it begins to hold together a little better. Ibn al-Muhallab didn't really need to escape under Omar. The caliph's many Qahtani loyalists probably kept him quite comfortable, even if they couldn't convince the caliph to restore him to his position. But with Yazid ibn Abdul Malik in charge, power was about to switch back into Adnani hands with a vengeance, and breaking out of jail was all Yazid could do to escape a cruel fate. Now that he was on the outside, though, Yazid had to think quick to stay one step ahead of the caliph and his loyalists. I probably should have mentioned this in our previous episode about Omar, but after Yazid was jailed and replaced, his family came back from Khurasan to plead his case with the caliph. That didn't really go anywhere, and they returned to Basra, where their tribal roots counted for the most. Remember, the Muhallabs were from Ezd, and those Omani tribes had resettled largely around that Canton city in the early days of the caliphate. Okay, So now it's obvious why Yazid quickly made his way to Basra, and equally obvious why the governor of Basra arrested all the muhallabs in the city as soon as he heard that Yazid had escaped. But holding Yazid's kin hostage wasn't enough, and the governor also fortified his palace and had some trenches dug around it in anticipation of Yazid ibn al-Muhallab's arrival. He was right to be worried. Yazid's standing in the caliphate had been greatly boosted during his time in charge of Khurasan back when Sulaiman was caliph. For those two and a half years, he was basically as powerful as al-Hajjaj had been, 
except his brutality made him popular because he used it against al-Hajjaj's hated loyalists and non-Arabs. The righteous Omar didn't have him imprisoned for nothing. Yazid had obviously plundered the riches of the East and had used them to build his own network of support. Even when his sons had come to beg for their father's release, they spent prodigious sums both en route and then back in Basra. This wealth and his reputation for generosity made Yazid ibn al-Muhallab a compelling choice, and many in and around Basra supported him, including some members of Tamim, who were nominally from the other side of the tribal conflict. With all this support, Yazid had no problem strolling back into the family's mansion in Basra, and once there even more Basrans came to pledge their help to get his family released. This made his battle against the city's governor even easier, and before too long Yazid emerged victorious, having freed his sons and brothers and imprisoned the governor and a couple dozen of his loyalists. Al-Tabari's account makes it clear that it was Yazid's open-handedness more than anything else that tipped the scales in his favor. Yazid's wealth was well known and he made expensive promises to the Basrans, all while the governor insisted he could pay each man no more than two dirhams a day, citing official policy no less. Clearly, telling people that the caliph didn't want to pay them any more than that pittance was terrible messaging, but we shouldn't forget that the people of Iraq and the East had pre-existing cause to be resistant to the new caliph, the perception that he represented a return to the terrifying regime of al-Hajjaj. Although that tyrant had been dead for more than five years now, his legacy still struck fear into the hearts of anyone who remembered his time in charge. So when Yazid ibn al-Muhallab upped the ante by calling for deposing the caliph, he had good reason to expect the support of the Iraqis and all the East. Now this was no small development. In fact, it had the potential to become a third fitna, a word we find being bandied about in some narrations. His supporters went around telling folks that fighting the Syrians was more virtuous than fighting the Turks and Daylamites, and that removing the Umayyads was the only way for the Ummah to be in accordance with the word of God and the way of his Prophet. Other narrations report that Hassan al-Basri, who would go on to become a very significant figure in Islamic thought, advised all who would listen not to engage in subversive acts for the sake of a man who was himself unimpressive. He chided them for plunging the Ummah into disagreement mere months after the enlightened reign of Omar II. He and another local holy man named Al-Sumayda called people to adhere to, quote, the way of the two Omars, which speaks volumes to just how highly the last caliph's reign was regarded. The Iraqis must have found this advice far less compelling than the Muhallab's money, because they started flocking in droves to Basra to pledge their support. We're told people came from all over, Kufa, the mountain lands to its east, and all the way to the frontier zone near the Caspian. The commanders Yazid ibn al-Muhallab used for his many supporting armies were pretty renowned as well. He had both an Ezdi and a Tamimi leader, one from each side of the tribal divide, the grandson of Ali's right-hand man, Nu'man ibn Ibrahim ibn al-Ashtar, and a great-grandson of the Yemenite tribal lord al-Ashath, so Kufan nobility. These impressive names certainly make Yazid ibn al-Muhallab seem like he was master of the east, and he faced no problems taking Wasit, where he camped to prepare for the caliph's reply. This had all taken place within Yazid ibn Abdul Malik's first few weeks as caliph, the jailbreak probably happened before his predecessor's death, then it snowballed from a small revolt in Basra into something that had all the makings of a civil war. He probably didn't get a chance to properly gauge the situation, because his first move was to send an emissary to try and talk the Muhallabs down. 
The man he chose was not a partisan in the tribal conflict, but had been very close to Al-Hajjaj, so the caliph clearly did not appreciate just how fraught the situation was. It's worth giving this man a short introduction, as he will remain with us for a few episodes. We've actually come across him before, but as that episode already had some new names in it, I elected to leave him without one. Back in Al-Walid's reign, some Iraqis left their city to take shelter from Al-Hajjaj's brutal policies in Medina. After its then-governor, Omar ibn Abdul Aziz, proved unable to punish them, Al-Hajjaj prevailed over the caliph to replace him with someone else. Well, that someone else was Khalid ibn Abdullah al-Qasri, and it was his closeness to Al-Hajjaj which got him the job then, just as it had now. This association with the hated figure didn't do him any favors, but he probably would have failed in his task without it too, as Yazid's supporters were already demanding the removal of the caliph by the time he got there. Khalid returned to Damascus and told the caliph that the only option was military force. Yazid ibn Abdul Malik entrusted the task of crushing Ibn al-Muhallab's uprising to his half-brother Maslama, and sent his nephew Abbas ibn al-Walid to support him as well. This was possibly the most tribally charged pair he could put together, as both Umayyads were solidly in the Adnani camp. Maslama was the governor of the north who had married the daughter of the Adnani chief Zufar, and Ibn al-Walid's mother was from another prominent Adnani clan. The two commanders led an overwhelmingly Adnani army, of course, from their stronghold in the northern province of Jazira, or Mesopotamia, into Iraq. We have a few versions of the battle to pick from, but frustratingly none of them mention the famous leaders on Ibn al-Muhallab's side. Some testimony even flies in the face of the idea that the East was united behind the Muhallabs, and a Kalbi leader appointed to Khurasan apparently raided Kufa, kidnapped some Muhallabs and marched them to Damascus. I'm going to use Al-Tabari's version, because it gives us plenty of context even if it is a little unlikely. In it, the Muhallabs were camped in Wasit, while the Umayyad army was in Kufa. Right after taking Wasit, Yazid ibn al-Muhallab asked his leaders for their advice, and their reply was that he should lead a tactical withdrawal to Faris in Iran. They reasoned that all the men east of the two Iraqi cities were loyal to him, and doing so would put rows of mountains and forts between him and the Umayyads, and he could take his time wearing them down. Yazid refused to heed their advice, saying he could not, quote, be content with being a bird in the mountains. They then recommended he proceed slowly, first to Kufa, then to Musil, telling him to stay out of the dangerous lands of Mesopotamia, which he could never hope to hold. He may have accepted the second round of advice. We're told that Yazid ibn al-Muhallab didn't stay too long in Wasit. He left one of his sons in charge of it, as he had in Basra, and took his forces to face Maslamas. The two armies camped by a bridge on opposite banks of a river, not too far from where the massacre of the Hashemites had happened at Karbala. Before the fighting got underway, emissaries from the caliph's armies came and asked the rebels what it would take to get them to return into the Ummah. These weren't sent to Yazid or the Muhallabs, but to the people they claimed to represent. The terms they offered on the battlefield were much more reasonable than the ones we heard about back in Basra, about how the Umayyads must be replaced. They only demanded that the caliph promise not to use Syrian armies to control their lands and to otherwise not try to revive the dark days of Al-Hajjaj. The negotiations lasted about eight days and Maslama remained in his base in Kufa. Yazid ibn al-Muhallab wanted to pull a trick on his opponents by sending 12,000 troops to the city in secret so they could dig hidden trenches and ultimately pluck it from the caliphate's control. 
He was chastised by the Basran holy man, Al-Sumaydah, for this deceitful suggestion, and here we once more get a handful of narrations with religious themes. Yazid's supporters cursed the Umayyads as godless men who could not be trusted, and Hassan al-Basri and al-Sumaydah called people to hold on to virtue the way a floating man would hold on to driftwood, so they would not drown in fitna. The fighting got started in earnest after talks broke down on the eighth day. It's not clear what happened, but the best I can tell is that Yazid ibn al-Muhallab and a fraction of his army crossed over to the other side of the river just before Maslama's men set fire to the bridge. This left Yazid stranded, and he cursed at the forces he had amassed as they lost the will to fight and disbanded. The Syrians must have feared him and his posse, though, because none of them tried to face him immediately. He roamed around for a bit, and our sources tell us Yazid refused more advice to try and escape to live and fight another day, saying he longed to join the kin who had died fighting for his banner. He found Maslama on the battlefield, and charged at the commander in a desperate attempt, but was killed by a member of the Umayyad's elite guard. This defeat brought an end to al-Muhallab's movement and any danger it posed to the caliph. His sons retreated to the east, though not before executing all the hostages they had taken, something they are censured for in our sources. They gathered mainly in faraway Sindh, but no distance could keep them safe from the caliph's wrath. For the next year or two, the Muhallabs were chased around the province, and their final stand took place somewhere around Qindabil. We find multiple stories testifying to the brutality of their slaughter, one telling of almost a hundred muhallabs captured and sent to Damascus, where the caliph put all their males to death and sold the females into slavery. These savage reprisals left a dark stain on the Umayyad name in the east, one which festered into a real problem down the line. This was compounded by the fact that the caliph had used an overwhelmingly Adnani force to reconquer Iraq and subdue the domains of the muhallabs. Within a couple decades, the people living in these provinces would come to view the Muhallabs as martyrs who died resisting the wicked Umayyads and their Adnani henchmen. This would prove disastrous as it united two powerful social tensions against the ruling clan. But it'll be a while before its impact was felt. We should get back to the Yazid this episode is named after now that his Muhallabite counterpart had been dealt with. It's a shame that we don't find anything as long or coherent in his reign as these narrations about the rebellion of the Muhallabs. Despite the blotchy coverage, we do get hints of lots of changes, the majority being reversals of his predecessor's policies. The most consequential of all of these was his reinstatement of taxation on all non-Arabs. This must have generated enormous levels of resentment across the caliphate, and although non-Arab Muslims were not forced to convert back or kicked out of the Muslim cities, their taxation was a clear signal that they were second-class citizens once again. Unfortunately, our sources are often incurious about the Muwadi and rarely dedicate any attention to their concerns, but we can still find hints of discontent in narrations about other matters. One unsubtle sign of dissatisfaction came from the Berbers of North Africa. When the governor sent to Afriqiya informed its newly Islamicized Berbers that they had to pay taxes again, they straight up killed the guy. Then they picked a replacement and let the caliph know so he could rubber-stamp their choice. Yazid couldn't do much about their insubordination and he just went along with it, contributing to a perception of a weakening of Umayyad authority over the province. Mawali elsewhere in the caliphate also rebelled against the new order, though not as effectively as the Berbers, and eventually they had little choice but to comply. The change destroyed any goodwill Omar's pious reign had gained the Umayyads in the east, 
and left many feeling like any good that came out of the ruling clan could only ever be accidental and short-lived. Another set of changes the caliph made was his dismissal of pretty much all of Omar's governors, usually replacing them with Adnani partisans. As a reward for his help with the Muhallab threat, Maslama was made governor of Iraq and the east, replaced by a man named Al-Jarrah ibn Abdullah as governor of Armenia and the north. Al-Jarrah faced an immediate threat from the Khazars, whose domain began just north of the Caucasus, the mountain range separating them from the Caliphate. An army of 30,000 tore first into Iberia, then Armenia and Azerbaijan. I'll upload a map of the region for whoever is interested on the show's website, thecaliphs.com. But al-Jarrah became a hero of the Ummah for his hard work in driving the Khazars back across the mountains. He invaded their lands, enslaved thousands, and extracted substantial wealth, but he could not hold any territorial gains against a semi-nomadic people like the Khazars. Realizing that his back would always be exposed, he wisely withdrew back to the defensible positions the Arabs held before. Another great bloodletting we don't get a lot of details about came from one of Maslama's closest lieutenants, a man named Omar ibn Hubayra. Ibn Hubayra had first served under the legendary Syrian general Sufyan al-Kalbi, whom we never really got to talk about. He participated in several campaigns against the Byzantines afterwards, many of them led by Maslama, the last of which was the drawn-out disaster known as the Second Siege of Constantinople. I know I said that Maslama was rewarded with the entire East for dealing with the Muhallabs, but were then told that the caliph was displeased at how little taxation he sent back to Damascus, and had him replaced by his ex-deputy Ibn Hubayra as a result. Anyway, one of the first things Ibn Hubayra had to deal with was a Sogdian rebellion, who were now allied with the Turkish, who were the vassals of the Chinese. We'll get into the details in some other episodes. The first man he sent was so brutal that he was replaced after he wouldn't even let those pardoned by the state keep their lives. Some narrations say the Sogdians wanted to move to Fergana, others that the queen of Fergana complained to Ibn Hubayra that the Sogdians were infiltrating her domain. Whatever the case was, by the end of the confused accounts, there were almost no Sogdians left alive. That's it. That is all we know about the events which took place during Yazid II's reign. We do actually have a little more about the man himself, but it is mostly narrations which chide the caliph for his excessive lustfulness. We don't have an awful lot about his upbringing, but from the little we do, it seems like he enjoyed the many luxuries his station in life allowed. This sort of explains why he wasn't governor or commander of anything. He may have just led the life of a libertine, waiting for his inevitable rise to caliph. A particular favorite of his was hanging out with his harem, and if al-Mas'udi's entertaining accounts are to be believed, which is a big if, Yazid's predilection was so well known that his own wife would purchase women whom she thought he would like. Other histories are less salacious, but even they attest that he was completely enamored with a longtime member of his harem named Habbaba, while others say he loved two concubines, Habbaba and Salama. I'll give you some examples. Many accounts say that Yazid was inspired by his predecessor Omar's example for exactly 40 days before being tempted back into his impure ways by the irresistible Habbaba. One narration quotes a pious elder saying that Yazid beat his two wings, Habbaba and Salama, and flew straight to eternal damnation. Another says that Habbaba died suddenly after choking on a grape, which the caliph had playfully fed her, describing it as a traumatic event which scarred Yazid deeply as she died gasping for breath between his arms. 
he was unable to part with her dead body for three days, after which his family, scandalized by his closeness to a corpse, forced him to bury her, and he himself died forty days later. There are other narrations, but I think you get the idea. The caliph let his love for his harem distract him from engaging fully in his role as leader of the ummah. Yazid II became caliph in the year 720, and he passed away four years later at the age of 33. I know I provided very little chronology for the events which took place, but you can consider the order I presented them in to be a good approximation, as we don't find enough narrations to be sure either way. Despite this paucity of information, we can make out two major problems for the caliphate, one obvious and the other inferred. The obvious one is how tribally charged everything was. We keep hearing the words Adnani and Qahtani, and it's hard to tell whether to blame Yazid or Sulaiman, but Yazid certainly wasn't making things any better. He chose Adnani commanders to go destroy Qahtani forces, and that's how feuds get fed. The more subtle problem was probably pretty obvious back then, and is just not properly covered by our sources. The caliphate was broke. We can pick up on this from putting together hints we find in multiple narrations. Yazid's governor of Basra couldn't match what the Muhallabs could pay his men. The caliph reinstated taxation on all Himawadi. The caliph replaced his half-brother because he wanted more revenue to flow from his province back to the capital. The problem may be clear, but the cause is not. Some sources blame Omar II's tax reforms, while others say it was Suleiman's expensive war on Constantinople which bled the treasury dry. I tend to agree with the latter, but I still see how more taxation could have seemed like a reasonable solution to Yazid's money problems. I've been complaining about a lack of information in our sources for a few episodes now, and if it's been irritating for you, just think how I must feel. The lack of narrations is doubly confusing because we are kept in the dark all while the caliphate grows and changes in ways we can only speculate about. Thankfully, we will be on steadier ground soon. Next time, we'll do a little roundup of these last few leaders, discuss Yazid's succession, and finally discuss a man our sources have considerably more to say about. Here on the Caliphs, the rise and fall of Arab power.